morning, everybody. You know, we often, we read these stories, and, uh, you know, we've, even though we've seen tons of movies and cartoons about them, especially this here with the, um, the, uh, the plagues that God judged Egypt with, we, we read these as antiquated. We see them as, um, you know, really not possible or, or very relevant, I think, even in our day. But I want to show today that there are strong connections um, in, in this story to, to our own world and circumstances. You know, Israel was under enslavement to Egypt, but we have, uh, our, our world has its own system that enslaves us, and I want to kind of work that out in today's sermon. So last week was... The, uh, the story when Moses and Aaron first went into Pharaoh, and they really, they really bumbled the effort. Uh, they didn't say what God had told them to say. They didn't approach Pharaoh with the attitude that God wanted them to have. And uh, so Pharaoh made things even worse for the Israelites, and, uh, and, and they were at rock bottom, so they were under harsh slavery. Moses, excuse me, Pharaoh was... Uh, killing their firstborn babies, um, and then they started getting beat because they, uh, they couldn't make the brick quota. So things got even worse for Israel. Moses and Aaron were at their rock bottom, and Pharaoh was ultimately strengthened. And so it seemed like um, it was the perfect opportunity and place and time for now God to show what he was going to do, and that's what he told Moses. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. And so the next six chapters really unfold God's judgments against Egypt for their harsh treatment of Israel. And so today we're primarily going to look at the, the first nine plagues, and then uh, we'll take a whole sermon to look at the tenth. Um, the nine plagues in order that we're going to cover today, first is um, Moses and Aaron, through the power of God, turning the Nile River into blood. The second one was, again, God's power through Moses and Aaron, uh, bringing swarms of frogs out of the Nile. Um, the third one is swarms of gnats that filled the air. The fourth one was swarms of flies that filled the air and covered the ground. The fifth one was disease and death on, on the animals. The sixth one was boils and sores on human beings. The seventh was hail and lightning. The eighth was locusts. And the ninth was darkness. Now, again, I think we're somewhat familiar with each of these, but there are some characteristics about these about these plagues, about these judgments that uh, really demonstrate what God is trying to do through them and what God is trying to show Israel and Egypt about himself. And so the first thing is that there is a, there is a strategic and intentional order to these plagues. The first one is that they are in cycles of three. Okay, so the first plague, which was the Nile to blood, um, and the fourth plague, which was the uh, flies, and the seventh plague, which was the hail and lightning, these 
three plagues in the text um, also include the purpose that God is carrying out with the plagues. So the first one states in verse 17 uh, that uh, Andrew read, Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. And so literally it would read, if we didn't have the translations putting in the Lord in all caps, literally it would read, by this you shall know that I am the I am. I am God speaking. I am the one who has always existed. I am the one that exists now. I will be the one that always exists. I have created everything. Nothing created me. I am the eternally existing God. I am the I am. There is only one I am. The second one, that you may know that I am the Lord. I am the I am in the midst of the earth. So, God is not, God the I am is not um, um, absent. He's not distracted from the affairs of humanity that are taking place on the earth. He is aware of what's going on the earth. He is in the midst of the earth. He is there. He is there. The last one, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. One of the purposes that we're going to see unfold through the plagues is that uh, God is going to be in competition with its greatest human ruler in Pharaoh, Earth's greatest human ruler in Pharaoh, and also supernatural gods, supernatural beings that exist and that are exerting their power, but they are in no comparison to God, the great almighty I am. And so these are the three purposes. I am the I am, the only I am. I am present on the earth, and there is none like me. So those are the three things that God is going to be carrying out through these plagues. The second part about their order is that it is a repeated process. And so so there's three cycles. Each has its beginning statement that we just went over. Um, And then they unfold in a similar way. Number one, number four, and number seven... Aaron and Moses always announce what's going to happen to Pharaoh early in the morning when he goes down to take a bath in the Nile. All right, so this is when he hasn't had his coffee yet. He's, up, he's probably not awake fully yet, so he's just wanting to get into the bathroom and take care of things in the morning. And hey, they come and they announce, here's what God's going to do. Then in the, sec- the second one, so it will be the second, the fifth, and the eighth, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh's palace in the middle of the day. Hey, here's what God's going to do. And in the third and in the sixth and in the ninth, it just happens. There's no announcement. So again, another cycle. They're also ordered by pairs. So the first pair, Nile to blood and frogs from the Nile. And this is where we really begin to see God intentionally working against the idols and the false gods that Egypt believed in. And so they believed that the Nile was this life-giving source that that brought their crops, and the Nile was a source of life. So what God does is he he takes what they perceive to be a source of life, the river, turns it to blood, which is, you know, obviously blood flowing, it's death, and then frogs from the Nile. So rather than bringing life, it's bringing this plague, and fl- frogs were also this sign of fertility and renewal. So God is showing that he has power over the Nile River, something that they perceived was some sort of supernatural 
uh, ability. And he is showing that he's more powerful than it by bringing plagues upon them from the Nile. Second pair, the gnats and the flies. And so the Egyptians believed that the ground gave birth to the flies and the gnats. And so there was some recognition for the soil, for the earth to be also a life-giving source because it, it uh, gave birth to, to insects. Well, what God does is he shows that um, if they did indeed believe, well, they did believe this, but the ground itself, so you have the, the Nile and you have the ground becoming a source of death. Things that they believe. Because Egypt um, was, was known worldwide at that point amongst the nations of the world as this place that had uh, an abundance of crops. An abundance of crops. So the ground and the Nile River, its water, are bringing destruction now because of the power of God. The third pair, cattle plagues. So the domesticated animals all got sick and were dying and then boils on human beings. And so they, the Egyptians believed, and they held the cow in reverence. They believed that it was a symbol of, of rejuvenation and rebirth. And so the cows are all dying. And in their own uh, preoccupation with health and beauty, God brings ugly, painful sores upon their bodies to show that this too cannot be a source of life and strength for Egypt outside of what God provides. The fourth pair, hail and locusts, destroyed Israel, excuse me, destroyed Egypt's crops. And so again, this thing that they were known for, the strength that they had in their ability, in their agricultural output, God brings destruction upon. What the hail doesn't destroy, the locusts do. And finally, the fifth pair, which we're including the tenth in this, the fifth pair, darkness and death. So they worshiped the sun also as a source of life. So the earth, the water, the sun, uh, God brings judgment up to Egypt from, through all of these. And so the sun is blackened for three days. So God's power over their source of life, but also in terms of their view of what their future life as a nation would be, God confronted with the death of their firstborn children. It's also ordered by place. So it starts in the waters, then it goes to the ground, and then it goes to the things that live on the ground, animals and humans, then it goes to the skies, the air, the atmospheric heavens, and finally the sun. So there is no place, there is no place in the created order that is exempt from the judgment that God brings. God, like they said, I am in the midst of the earth. God is all-powerful. And so we see, again, there's, there's great meaning in how God has organized these, these plagues, not only in what they do, but in the ordering and in where they take place. The um, Jewish scholar said that the controlling purpose behind this literary architecture is to emphasize the idea that the nine plagues are not natural vicissitudes of nature. They just happen to be naturally occurring. They are natural disasters. They are deliberate and purposeful acts of divine will, their intent being retributive, which means punishing, coercive, which means they're trying to do something, God's trying to do something with them, 
and also educative to reveal who Yahweh God is to the nation of Egypt. The plagues also reveal contests between Yahweh and other gods. Now, this takes place between the wise men and the magicians. And so the wise men and the magicians at the time in Egypt would have been those who through reason and magic, all right, we would have technology and science. They have wise men and magicians for the manipulation of creation. And there are four episodes that take place in these chapters where God is, is engaging in conflict and battle with the false gods of Egypt. The first one is when Moses and Aaron go in the second time, before, there are any, before any plagues have been executed, they go in the second time and they say, uh, you know, God wants you to release Israel, that they may go and worship him. And, he sh- and then they show them the signs, namely the, the staff that turns into the, the snake. And so Aaron throws down his staff, it turns into a snake. The magicians throw down their staves, and they're also turned into snakes. But then Aaron's staff, snake, swallows up the snakes that the magicians created. So there are sources of magic, the scriptures call them magicians, that do have supernatural, what we would consider supernatural abilities. But in this one, God shows that he is stronger, that his single snake can swallow up these other snakes that they created. The second one is the Nile to blood. The magicians also are able to turn water into blood. There's one big difference, though, that emerges here. The magicians are not able to turn the blood back to water. So after seven days, God turns the Nile, which was blood, back into water. So what we see here is that the the Evil forces of supernatural power have the ability to create disorder, what God has created. They can bring disorder to God's order, but they cannot return things to order. They cannot do the things that God does in creation. The third one is is frogs from the Nile. God brings frogs from the Nile through Moses and Aaron. The Egyptian magicians are also able to bring frogs from the Nile. But once again, they're not able to rid Egypt of the frogs. Moses and Aaron, through the power of God, are. So once again, they are, they are powerful enough to, to bring disorder and chaos to God's world. They are not powerful enough to remove the chaos and disorder and bring things back to order. And finally, in the fourth episode where God creates the swarms of gnats, the magicians are not able to recreate this. And they, in fact, say to Pharaoh, this is a power beyond us. This is the finger, excuse me, the finger of God. This is the finger of God. Now, I don't think it is beneficial to try to explain um, 
away the supernatural things that are going on here, either by the hands of God or by the hands of the Egyptian magicians. If, I, if I'm remembering correctly, I think in the Prince of Egypt animated movie, uh, they show the magicians uh, turning water into blood, but they put dye in the bowl of water. Am I right? If I'm, am I remembering that right? Probably from 20 years ago, whenever I saw that. That's not what happened. Why would God allow the demonstration of supernatural powers that he is here waging battle against? The Bible from the beginning till the end demonstrates and shows that there are powers beyond human powers in this world, invisible powers of darkness. Paul calls them the rulers and principalities of the air. You see them scattered throughout all of the Bible. It is a realm of beings and a realm of existence that we cannot see, but they have power, power that is greater than the power that human beings have. And they are able to do supernatural things. And what, what, the, what God is wanting to show is that there are supernatural dark forces at play in Egypt. This isn't just humans versus humans or God versus humans. This is, this is humans with forces of darkness on their side. And this is humans with the force of God on their side. There are supernatural evil forces influencing Egypt. And so God is wanting to reveal that. He is wanting to show the people at the time, but also readers, that there are supernatural forces behind nations that are dark. The text shows that they have powers, but their powers are useful only in disordering what God has ordered. They are useful, these supernatural powers only can bring corruption and perversion and death to what God has brought life and order to. But God eventually shows that they have limits, not just in their inability to create order in life, but bringing things to a halt. God brings their powers to a halt. Later in Numbers, we're going to see where it's written that while Egypt was burying their firstborn that had been killed by the angel of death. While Egypt was burying their firstborn, God was executing judgments against their false gods. And that's what we see happening here. He, bring, he shuts them down. God shuts them down. The plagues also distinguish between those he has chosen and those who serve other, these other gods. Exodus 9.4, the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And then later in verses 25 through 26 of chapter 9, the hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. And so this we see working out the promise that God made to Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And so we see God distinguishing his people. God cares for those who acknowledge him as God, those whom he has made promises to. And so these are, again, this isn't, there's, 
probably a lot more stuff there in these plagues. But these, are, these plagues reveal that God is indeed the only I am. There is no other gods that compete with him, and he is very involved in humanity. So this was idolatrous Egypt. It is a unified culture with a common, common religions, government, economy, with Pharaoh at the top. Everything was integrated and unified around Pharaoh and these false gods. Their, their, their economy, their means of production, their agriculture, their power, everything was this unified, cohesive whole. But they had no knowledge of God. Remember what Pharaoh said? Who is Yahweh that I should obey him? I don't know this Yahweh, and I am not going to release Israel. Eventually, he comes to the point where he knows Yahweh, doesn't believe in him, doesn't acknowledge him as God, but he gets to the point where he knows who he is and that there's no one like him. So here you have a nation under Pharaoh, idolatrous, everything is integrated and, and, and cohesive in terms of their religion, their politics, their economy. But what are Egypt's characteristics as a nation that doesn't know Yahweh? All of the citizens are indentured servants to Pharaoh. They had sold themselves generations earlier. Foreigners are enslaved, brutally treated, their babies murdered. And ultimately, Pharaoh brings the entire nation to ruin. These are characteristic, characteristics of nations with these kinds of characteristics, primarily nations that don't know God. Nations that don't know God. Eventually, they bring its people under slavery and dictatorships. Now, our nation, and really the nations of the world, to be truthful, we don't have a unified culture. We don't have a unified religion or really government. The only thing that unifies us as a people, besides we all live on the same continents, the only thing that, think, that is increasingly emerging that unifies us is our love of money. Because if you were to ask yourself, what, what are the similarities? And you have to, would have to see that there is some similarities in what we all do depend upon. The Egyptians depended upon Pharaoh and it's the whole system. And we're going to see that even though Israel is freed bodily from Egypt, we're going to see that their hearts are still enslaved to Egypt. We've seen, especially in this last week with the events around the world, that anything of, of any consequence that happens in this world has ripple effects throughout the world, primarily in the economy. Everything now is so tightly integrated. I was listening to President Biden's speech on Friday afternoon when he was talking about, you know, they invaded on Thursday, and so there was a speech by the president on Friday afternoon, and he spent a majority of the time uh, describing the evasion, what's going on, uh, how the nations of the world are going to respond to it, what America has done. But then when he turned to address the concerns of America, 
The first thing he talked about, and the thing he talked about the most, was the pain we would feel in our pocketbooks from the, emerg- from the, from the costs of the energy prices going up. Now, that's not an unimportant thing. But that's the first thing he talked about. And it was the primary thing that he talked about. Not about the families of the Ukrainians or friends of Ukrainians that we have here in the States that are worried about them. It's a mention. But the first thing he addressed that he believed Americans would feel the pain of is how it affects their money. And he assured the country that the administration is going to do all it can. Now, I'm not saying that that was... That's just where things are at. And that's part of his job. But we increasingly see ourselves, not just our own country, but the nations of the world, we depend upon our governments to provide some of these kinds of assurances. Assurances that we're going to be okay financially. And we see that that Without God, we look to government, just like the Egyptians looked to government, just like we're going to see Israel looking. Why didn't you leave us back in Egypt? We're going to see Israel repeatedly state as they are in the wilderness. If we are not careful, we will see, just as our nations of the world see, the government as a source of life, of power, of our economic well-being, etc., and not as a steward. Not as a steward. It, it did not create the material world, the, the things that which we draw our livelihood and abundance. Government is a steward. It's not a source. And we increasingly see a, um, um, a, a reliance upon power and authority to govern us. Power and authority not law and truth. It's, it's different. There is law in government, but you can see our pursuit of government offices, the pursuits of the parties to gain, to gain power. Not to be stewards of, of law and truth, but to be able to, to wield power, to create laws that benefit them and their constituents. There are not ideals established by God that we rally around and see ourselves as stewards of for the flourishing of humanity. We we pursue power for the carrying out of our own purposes and ideals. This was Egypt. This was Egypt. And our dependency upon our government and, and for power to be handled in the way that we want it to, is increasingly seen in our growing conflicts and growing emotion around elections and anything related to government. The courts, policing, laws. But yet, our governments also submit to money. You know, the conversation around what, what are the nations of the world going to do to, to Putin and to Russia, a lot of hesitancy around taking everything to the extreme. Why? Because of the concern it would have on the economy globally. Cutting off Russia completely would hurt financially. And President Putin knows this. That's why it's part of the reason why 
he was able to do what he did is that he knows he knows who's he knows the nations of the world serve money Jack Weatherford was a professor here at McAllister and um, he's written a book on the history of money, and he wrote, uh, if you're familiar with Lapham's Quarterly, uh, Lewis Lapham was a long-term editor of Harper's Magazine, one of, one of America's uh, leading public intellectuals, really smart guy. He created, a, he created a, a journal called Lapham's Quarterly. And their second issue in 2008, so this is right after really the beginnings of the, the, the recession, 2007, 2008, 2009, um, in an article on the connectedness and the reliance of the nations upon money, this is what the article was about. He says this, in the global economy that is still emerging, the power of money will supersede that of any nation, combination of nations or international organization now in existence. Its erratic will, I love this statement, its erratic will forces politicians of the strongest national economies to bow in humble submission. And he also says this, Before the coin, kingdoms derived their power from agriculture and conquest. Rulers needed nothing more to govern than a strong army and a credible priesthood. That was Pharaoh and his magicians. They had agriculture, they had the army, and they had their priests. And with that, they had the authority and power to do what they want. That was Pharaoh. Now, money is Pharaoh. Money is Pharaoh. We will see again, as I stated, that after deliverance, Israel will still be enslaved in their hearts to Egypt. We have a few, few messages on that. We'll see that, that Israel really needed a greater deliverance. They needed a greater deliverance than just the bodily deliverance. They needed a, a deliverance from the heart. Moses will say the same thing in Deuteronomy. Another prophet will come, like me, and you will listen to him because he is going to take your heart of stone and he's going to make it a heart of flesh, and you will listen to him. Well, Jesus was that prophet that he was referring to that would bring a change of heart. And Jesus had plenty to say in warning humanity about the power of money and our tendency to worship it. Throughout his life, he showed what, that what he could do was greater than money. He, he literally, they were, you know, it was tax time. And the disciples were concerned about what they were going to do to pay taxes. And, they, and, and so they went to Jesus, and Jesus said, well, this is really not my world, but I don't want to appear to, to be irresponsible in the eyes of the people. So he literally went to a fish. He went to a fish and he pulled coins out of the mouth of the fish. That's money to Jesus. Oh, we need some money. I'm just, I'll just pull some coins out of the mouth of a fish. He created money out of thin air. He produced bread and fish to feed thousands. Remember what the disciples said? I can't remember what the exact number was, but there was like 4,000 or 5,000 men. Okay, so their wives and kids as well. And he's like, how many days, the disciples were, how many days wages would it take to feed all of these people? Jesus eliminated the financial concern and he fed the whole crowd. He turned 
bread and a few loaves and a few pieces of bread into enough without money. The text says that he healed people that had spent their life savings on physicians. All right, so he eliminated the need for people to have money to be healed. And he changed the heart of a tax collector who made money from money. A lot of people in our world today make money from money. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. But you also see it in time of Jesus, people making money from money, and he changes their hearts because Zacchaeus, the tax collector, recognized that he was not a happy man. All of his years of, of stealing were not paying off. And so he said he would return fourfold what he had stolen and that he was going to give half of his possessions to the poor. In the book of Revelation, in the end, there was a, there, a, a global ruler will emerge that is called the Antichrist. He will not bow to money. He, the Antichrist, sees the, the idolatrous nature of humanity towards money, and he will destroy the world's financial system. That's the destruction of Babylon in chapter 18 of Revelation. And it says that the, 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 that the kings and the merchants of the world will weep and they will wail and they will mourn because Babylon has come to an end. The Antichrist will not allow an alternative. And then Jesus comes and kills the Antichrist and everything will be fine. But to him, even money is idolatrous. He is not going to have a competitor. He's not going to compete with Christ. He's not going to compete with money. But Christ will destroy him. So as Christians, if I'm right, if I'm saying, you know, we need to, we need to stop thinking that that was a far different world and that being enslaved to someone like Pharaoh is just not going to happen to us. It's not hap- if I'm right in saying that, no, I think we have a comparable system. And it's not Pharaoh but money that enslaves the world. If I'm right, if, that's, if money is the modern-day Pharaoh, how do we, how do we as Christians, we're, we're, we, I mean, we cannot, I mean, I suppose some of us could go live off the grid, and make our own food and sew our own clothes, but that's not really an option. Jesus didn't escape the world. Jesus lived in the world, a world ruled by money, ruled by the power of very powerful governments. So how do we as Christians live in a world ruled by money? How do we live with money? And there's really two things. I think first, we must come to know Yahweh. We must come to know the great I am. If if not knowing the I am leads to nations like Egypt or America or Russia or Ukraine or anywhere, if that's what not knowing Yahweh leads to, we must first know Yahweh. He is a greater power with a greater kingdom. Ultimately, that, that greater power is shown not only just in the miracles that Jesus had in relationship to money, but in his power over death, death being the tool that tyrants have always used to enslave people. Jesus brought order. He brought satisfaction from starvation. He brings health from sickness. He brings joy from pain. He brings life from death. Only Jesus has done that. 
So we need to come to know Yahweh and recognize that, that there is a greater power that lives in us than any power that exists in the world. And that he is the only power worthy of our worship and adoration. And the second thing that we need to do to avoid falling victim, to avoid becoming enslaved, is to steward the money. It's, it cannot be a source that we worship. We have to see that it's a tool. It's something that we are called to steward, to build the greater kingdom. Jesus said that the use of our money will show our hearts. And so we can look at our lives, and if we can see that all of our money is going to material possessions to make us feel happy and secure, which we're going to address in future sermons, the idolatry of security, then, then the use of our money will show where our hearts really lie and what we truly worship and put our security and sense of life in. But alternatively, um, not only will our money show where our heart's at, our, we could also use our money to train our hearts. We can use our money to train our hearts. If I gave you $10,000 and you put $10,000 into you know, the S&P 500 index fund, which has gone all over the place this last week, you'd be checking it every day. Hmm, where's my 10,000 bucks? Or if I gave you, you know, $10,000 in Bitcoin. Where's it at? Why? Because you now have some investment. I didn't do anything to earn this 10,000, but somebody gave me 10,000, and now my heart's where my 10,000 is, so I'm going to be checking the stock market every day. The same would work with our hearts. If you begin investing your money through obedience and faith and belief and recognition that the kingdom of God is a better kingdom to invest in, a more secure kingdom to invest in, what will happen is that through your faith and obedience, your heart will begin to follow your heart will begin to follow. We're called to use our money, to steward our money for the welfare of our families. We're called to use our money for the support of the church and of the ministry of the gospel. We're called to use our money to help the family, the other people in the church that are in need. We're called to use our money to meet the needs of the poor. These are things that God has called us to use our money for. He's also called us to enjoy what he has provided. If we're able to enjoy what God has provided because we live a life of generosity and obedience to him, that's worship. That's worship. And we need to be wholehearted in this. That's one of the big themes that we're seeing over the course of this series, wholehearted. I live honestly before God. It's, you know, the, the, the dynamics of how we spend the money, it's not easy. And, you know, we, we get older and our kids get older and our expenses grow and we just, we're trying to figure out what jobs we should have. It's a challenging world to live in, in terms of our economic production, what we're going to do for work, how we're going to get trained and educated, what we're going to spend our money on, where we're going to live, what size of house, how many cars, what size of cars, what kinds of cars, our kids' education, do we do public school or private school? or homeschool, what neighborhoods do we... A lot of decisions that take place in regard to our money. That we could live wholeheartedly in all of these decisions before God, trusting in his guidance and provision in all of it, is a life-giving and freeing, and I tell you what, exciting. It's an exciting way to live because you recognize that you are not the, in the driver's seat. 
The Lord God is at the driver's seat if you have submitted to him as God, the great I am. And he will bless and provide and guide in all of these kinds of things if we are able to live wholeheartedly. It's not simple, it's not easy, it's not a list of rules, it's not just 10%. It's a life recognizing that money is not my Lord, God is. And the last thing I want is God to execute judgments against me to reveal my idolatry of money. So we should keep this imagery in mind that we are not much different from Israel living in Egypt under Pharaoh. Just It's different in terms of the material circumstances, but in the terms of its spirit, the world hasn't changed that much. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its relevance. Thank you, Lord God, for your consistency. Thank you, Lord God, that you, that you as the I am are the only I am that you do exist in this world and that you care for us. And Lord God, that, that um, there is none like you. And God, we are so privileged to have a God that is you, who cares for us, who loves us, has given your son, that we may have life and power and glory in your name. Amen.